Greetings. This is Roger Kimball, the editor of the New Criterion, and I'm speaking to you from the world headquarters of the world's best cultural review. And I'm delighted to give you a little advance preview of our May 2018 issue. We start off with a brilliant essay on Dostoevsky's Idiot by Gary Saul Morrison. You won't want to miss this. Then we have a story by Gerald Frost on the Russians' habit of poisoning people in England and elsewhere. Then we have a brilliant essay by Heather MacDonald, not on her usual subject, the police, but on opera. Heather writes about Alma Deutscher's new opera, Cinderella. Alma Deutscher, as some of you may know, is 12 years old, and Heather likes what she heard. Cinderella seems like an appropriate subject for a 12-year-old, but this prodigy uh, is really quite, quite a new talent, and Heather uh, is, does a great job introducing her to the world. And finally, our final feature is in commemoration, uh, grateful commemoration, I might say, of Enoch Powell's famous or infamous Rivers of Blood speech. The Rivers of Blood, of course, is a, an allusion to a line from the Aeneid, Tibrum multo spumantem sanguine kerno, and I seem to see the Tiber frothing with much blood. Enoch Powell's speech was about the dangers of unfettered immigration, and I think that uh, uh, his prognostication about what that would do to British society has proved quite prescient. I'd also like to read to you my notes and comments from the May issue. There are two of them. One is about the Brooklyn Museum. The other is about what's going on at Holy Cross University, Holy Cross College, I guess it's called, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, they both can be filed under the title of the first note, Annals of Leftist Autophagy, that is, self-cannibalization. It is a truth universally acknowledged that revolutionary sentiment is inherently expansionist and, if unimpeded, always winds up devouring its earlier partisans. As we write, the social justice chain Starbucks, famous for hectoring its customers about progressive politics and serving expensive burnt coffee, is being boycotted because a store manager in Philadelphia had two black loiterers arrested and removed by the police. Kevin Johnson, the company's spineless CEO, sized up this brewing mess and emitted a pathetic damage control bulletin, calling the manager's act reprehensible and vowing to be better for customers who come to us for a sense of community every day. And here we thought that people went to Starbucks for coffee. Nothing so pedestrian, it turns out. It's a sense of community they crave behind that grande mocha frappuccino. On May 29th, in a gesture of ritual expiation, the wretched chain will close all 8,000 of its stores for an orgy of liberal guilt and racial bias training. Pathetic. To compare large things with small or perhaps it's the other way around, consider the comical temper tantrum now swirling about the Brooklyn Museum. No major New York museum 
is more politically correct. Located in the outer boroughs, it had to do something to attract attention. So it hosts pornographic exhibitions like Sensation, which drew in the crowds back in 1999, and makes a big deal of feminist embarrassments like Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party, called a milestone in 20th century art, according to one press release. In 2016, the museum bestowed upon Angela Davis its Sackler Center First Award, honoring women who are first in their fields. It's hard to cavil with that description. Ms. Davis, the former Black Panther, is surely the first recipient of the Soviet Union's Lenin Peace Prize, two-time vice presidential candidate on the communist ticket with Gus Hall, and winner of a spot on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for being a fugitive wanted for material accessory to murder, to have also parlayed that resume into a tenured professorship at the University of, can you guess? Yes, the University of California. All of which is to say that the Brooklyn Museum, especially under its newish director, Anne Pasternak, is a model of political correctness. Ms. Pasternak cut her teeth organizing exhibitions like The Abortion Project at alternative art spaces. At the Brooklyn Museum, she has championed curators who take a, quote, anti-colonial approach to curating with exhibitions like The Legacy of Lynching, Confronting Racial Terror in America, and We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, 1965 to 1985. If you think all that rubbish purchased Anne Pasternak or the Brooklyn Museum some street cred with the left, think again. No sooner had the museum announced that its new curator of African art would be Kirsten Winmuller Luna than the protests began. For Ms. Winmuller Luna, you see, is that diminished thing, a white woman. Appointing her as the curator of African art is an example of what social justice warriors call cultural appropriation that perpetuates the Brooklyn Museum's legacy of colonial attitudes. Anyway, that's what two open letters have angrily alleged. These documents make it clear that Ms. Windmuller Luna's actual qualifications, such as they are, have nothing to do with the case. At stake is not competence or expertise, but identity politics. Martin Luther King Jr. urged us to look beyond the color of our skin to the content of our character. That attitude has long ago been enrolled in the index prohibitorum of, quote, racist, end quote, backpedaling. According to these remarkable attacks, the appointment of Ms. Winmuller Luna constitutes a curatorial crisis for the museum. All is not lost, however, for the alleged crisis offers the museum an opportunity to decolonize. That's right. The petition writers do not just want a more swarthy curator to replace Ms. Windmuller Luna. They want to challenge the, quote, pervasive structures of white supremacy in the art field. They want a structural response. Structure, like crisis, is a favorite word. And they therefore call for the creation of a decolonization commission to, quote, redress ongoing legacies of oppression, especially when it comes to the status of African art and culture. 
Those legacies of oppression encompass much more than the status of African art and culture, however. So the process of decolonization must start, quote, with the acknowledgement that the buildings sit on stolen indigenous land, that they contain thousands of objects expropriated from people of color around the world, and that the institution is governed by a group of majority white members of the 1% actively involved in the dynamics of racialized dispossession and displacement in Brooklyn. Oh, dear. And that's just the start, you see. Because as you may have already guessed, decolonization is, as they say, never a finished process. The institutions that signed these letters, 12 at first, which grew to 19 for the second communication, are smorgasbord of loopy left-wing groups. Decolonize this place and the Brooklyn Anti-Gentrification Network are signatories, for example, along with Flower Lovers Against Corruption and Dancing for Justice and Occupy Museums. Quote, we belong to communities that are engaged in day-to-day struggles against the settler colonialism, white supremacy, patriarchal violence, police terror, mass incarceration, population displacement, deportation, economic precarity, and climate disaster. Has anything been left out? Is there any left-wing cause that has not been fitted with its demand? What about Israel? No self-respecting left-wing activist movement can proceed without at least a ritual bashing of Israel. Sure enough, among the Brooklyn Museum's sins is having provided cover for pro-Israeli art washing in the exhibition of the lavishly funded This Place Photography Show. Presumably, the fact that the exhibition was lavishly funded deepens the heinousness of the tort. The authors come back to Israel in their demand that the museum demonstrate its institutional commitment to the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel, especially as it implicates Jews in Brooklyn who may be involved in the settler movement in the West Bank. Like any such initiative worth its salt, these open letters end with a long list of demands, which are even more comical than the narrative that prefaces it. They want a, quote, inventory of colonial error objects of both African and indigenous people with a view to settling the long-pursued claims of reparations and repatriation. And also they want the replacement of board president David Berliner and other trustees who are real estate tycoons with a broad cross-section of artists and community organizers. Getting rid of people who actually support the museum financially is going to make another key demand easy to achieve. We mean the effort to start a de-gentrification initiative to examine and mitigate the museum's role in boosting land values and rents in the borough. We are certain that, should these lunatics get their way, de-gentrification and plummeting land values would be the rapid result. It goes without saying that such childish antics are simply business as usual in the self-important fever swamps of the left. In terms of substance, they are merely part of the toxic blanket of identity politics that swaddles our educational 
in cultural institutions today. But not only do they afford a sterling instance of how the left devours itself, and Pasternak is an ally in their silliness, not an opponent, they also illustrate a hard truth that Winston Churchill articulated in 1937 when he appeared before the Peel Commission on creating a Jewish state among the Palestinian Arabs. Churchill was in favor of such a state for reasons that once counted as common sense wisdom, but which now can hardly be uttered. Quote, I do not admit that the dog in the manger has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time, Churchill said of the Palestinians. And by way of explanation, he went on to say, I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to those people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, or at, at any rate, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. I do not admit it. I do not think the Red Indians have any right to say, the American continent belongs to us, and we are not going to have any of these European settlers coming in here. They have not the right, nor had they the power. We might express this sentiment differently, but it speaks to a commonplace reality, or what used to be one before political correctness clouded our faculty for apprehending difficult truths. The fact that such rough truth sends academic and cultural partisans of identity politics into a frothing tizzy is just one more reason that they deserve our pity as well as our contempt, but above all, our vigilance. Our next note is called Holy Cross-Dressing. Self-cannibalization can take several forms. In the case of the Brooklyn Museum, it is an expression of the always overreaching activism of the left. In the case of many religious institutions, and in particular many educational institutions with a religious core, the phenomenon often expresses itself in bizarre inversions. For reasons that are not entirely clear, Jesuit colleges seem peculiarly susceptible to this species of leftist autophagy. Anyone who has contemplated the recent careers of institutions like Georgetown or Notre Dame will instantly know what we mean. But perhaps the most extravagant single instance of perversion is offered by the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Allow us to introduce you to Tat Siong Benny Liu, who glories in an endowed professorship in religious studies at Holy Cross. His fields include, quote, synoptic gospels, gospel of John, cultural and racial interpretations, and receptions of the Bible, end quote. Really, however, he specializes in a phantasmagoria of sexual perversion overlaid like a toxic paste upon the religious texts that he disfigures. In a remarkable piece of reporting for a college newspaper called the Fenwick Review, Eleanor Riley, class of 18 at Holy Cross, provides a portrait of a scholar and a department gone ludicrously wrong. One representative specimen of Liu's scholarship is an essay called Queering Closets and Perverting Desires, colon, 
cross-examining John's engendering and transgendering word across different worlds. And here's a quote from that essay. If one follows the trajectory of wisdom-word or Sophia-Jesus, parenthesis, con, and parenthesis, figuration, Professor Liu explains, what we have in John's Jesus is not only a, quote, king of Israel, end quote, but also a drag king, a drag kingly bride in his passion. Ms. Riley provides a brilliant, deadpan, and ultimately depressing anatomy of Professor Liu's kinky misinterpretation of scripture. Remember, this is a religious studies department in a nominally Catholic college. Indeed, according to Miss Riley, he is about to become the chair of the department. We wonder how many parents know what they signed up for when they sent their carefully brought up children to Holy Cross. This is Roger Kimball welcoming you to the May issue of the new Criterion.